Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loeb Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Nancy Spitzer as our guest. Nancy has been a licensed marriage and family therapist since 2012, specializing in trauma, addiction, co-occurring disorders, and much more. She was inspired to shift her career to therapy after losing her brother, David, to a drug overdose. As a therapist, Nancy's passion is to not only help her individual clients, but to help families understand how to navigate the painful path of addiction while providing opportunities for much-needed resources and support. Nancy has spoken numerous times as a presenter for the National Association of Therapeutic Schools and Programs on the topic of families struggling with addiction and trauma. Nancy is very proud of her family. She loves to spend time with her husband and two adopted pups, and they are excited, as we are, to add a little one this winter to their family. Friends, please enjoy Mrs. Nancy Spitzer, episode 28. Let's do this. Nancy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So right now you are pregnant. How far along are you? I am going to be, gosh, good question. So right now I'm 24 weeks. I'm working on 25. So tomorrow's 25 weeks. So yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Awesome. It's almost That's really six cool. months. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Well, hopefully this podcast won't stress out your baby too much. No, he'll just move around a lot. Typically <laughs> 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 what he does. Two guests today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so awesome. So you are a therapist. Mm-hmm. When yeah. did you become a therapist? So I got my master's in 2012 and I've been licensed since 2014. So since then, and I've been uh, working in the field since 2010. So I've been working in the field a long time, specifically in addiction. And um, what made you want to come work with, um, with people who are struggling mentally and uh, addiction and all of that? Sure. It's kind of a long answer, but I'll let you know. So I originally had gone to school for public relations and marketing and at the end of the day, I felt really unfulfilled. Get back uh, about five or six years, I had lost my brother to substance abuse and went to Alateen and Al-Anon, got such amazing support. I also went through therapy at that time, and he had died from an overdose. And, you know, I, um, like I said, I felt really unfulfilled. I was 21, 22 years old. And I said to myself, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Because not that there's anything wrong with marketing and public relations. I actually use that all the time in therapy in some ways. But I wanted to help families because I felt like my family was so lost and they didn't know what to do. And I think if they had some better education and some guidance, it would maybe things wouldn't have ended differently, but they would have had more support. So that's really what led me. And then I started to get emails from Nova Southeastern. I had no idea you could become a therapist. I always thought you had to be a doctor or you had, you know, all these career paths. I had no idea. So I went to the campus and explored it. And they talked about working with families and systemic therapy, which is looking at the whole picture. And that spoke to my heart. And that's, that's what led me to work with people in substance abuse. And from day one, I did my interview and I said, you know, my heart and soul is working with people in recovery. 
they tried to dissuade me <laughs> in the interview. They said, <laughs> they're like, that's really hard. Yeah. You're probably going to want to work with kids and, a, you know, and couples. And I said, no. And, you know, um, the dean of the school, and I always joke about it now years later because I've, I've made my career out of it. But uh, she said, you know, you're very headstrong. You, that was always what you wanted to do. And I said, yeah, that is exactly what I wanted. And, you know, I did my internship. I worked at, you know, at the Hanley Center in, in Florida. And I had such a rewarding experience, but I, I really had to kind of carve my own pathway because not many marriage and family therapists work in substance abuse. Right. So I'm kind of a loner sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> lots of social workers, lots of mental health counselors, but not so much marriage and family therapists. I'm hoping that changes. I do try to go back to my my university that I went to and talk often. And there's definitely more and more people interested in yeah. working in substance abuse. So. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. And I, we're, we're seeing a lot more marriage and family therapists um, who are working in substance abuse. So I think that's important. So you talked about your brother. Let's go back a little bit. Where, where did you grow up? and um, kind of what was your family system? What did that look like? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, New Jersey in a beautiful suburban community, not like what's portrayed on TV many times when you associate New Jersey. Uh, It actually is a very nice place. Um, (laughs) At least where I grew up. I grew up about 30 minutes from New York City, so a lot of commuter people, uh, family. I came from kind of not um, a split family, but my dad had been married prior, had two sons in that marriage. They were a lot older than me. We always kept, you know, a close relationship. He worked hard on that. And then myself and my mom. So I was technically an only child, if you want to put it right. that way. But my brother, my brothers were still in my life. So that's, that's how, how we much raised. Older? My brothers were, now, now you're making me do math. Okay, sorry, sorry. Therapists don't do math. So about. Um, pregnant therapist. Yeah, pregnant therapist. That's true. So I have an excuse yeah. other than I'm bad at math, but about 17 and, and 19 years older than me. So, okay. Okay. yeah, mm-hmm. so big age gap. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And, and you got along with them. Did you like feel like they were your, your full family or was it like, oh, they're my half brothers or. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't like particularly saying that myself, you know, and, and saying half or step or, or whatever it may be. I mean, my family just didn't address it like that, but my brothers were definitely, you know, a part of holidays and my dad would try to blend our families as best as possible with the age gap. Obviously, you know, having my dad being a little bit older and having a little girl, some of the attention went towards me and not to them. And that was definitely, and my dad also worked a lot during their childhood and during my childhood, he was more at home. So I think there were some splits there and and differences in our, we, we did have different childhoods. We just you know, my dad was busy in the film industry and off and gone. And then when um, I came around, he was home a lot. So definitely had a different childhood than them. Did you feel any of that from them? I did from my oldest brother. Um, him and I still to this day, we don't have the greatest relationship. You know, he also had a strained relationship with my other brother too. I think there was definitely some, some, yeah, there, you know, why, why are you having another daughter? Why are you having another child? Yeah, right. You know, another and, and family. You kind of, yeah, another family, you know, it's hurtful. And, and, you know, as a young adult, because that's what he was becoming at that time, you know, who really wants to have a, a little sister yeah. in, in the picture yeah. too. So, yeah, yeah. It, I'm sure it brought up a lot for him and that was out of, out of his control. There's just kind of how he felt about the whole situation. That makes sense. And, so the younger brother was the one who struggled. What was your relationship like with him? And when did you kind of realize, how old were you when you realized what was going on with him or that there was, there was something was up? So ever since I was young, um, so his name is David. 
And David, my dad had told me many stories about David when, you know, just me growing up and him growing up and knowing him. We had a very close bond from a very early age. Every time he would come, he would make me like roll on the floor laughing, just hysterical, very warm, loving, loving person. But there would be times when he wouldn't be around for a while. And I remember asking my parents, like, hey, where's David? Even when I was little. And you know, um, my parents would be, oh, he's not doing great right now, or something's, or he's working a lot. That was kind of their way of, of phrasing it. So I knew something was wrong when I was younger, and he would just disappear for times. He had gone to treatment when he was 15, um, and back then, you know, according to my parents, and according to him as well, because he had also told me the story, it was really um, humiliating. They had shaved his head. They did a lot of, you know, like punishment and consequential treatment with him. He ran away twice. And the second time my dad had taken him home, my dad and mom had always talked about a story. Like he had rolling papers in his, his room and he said he liked to lick them. So like just very addict behavior very early on. So I was always kind of aware of it. My parents, my parents had me when, when they were older. So they always talked to me like I was an adult. They really didn't cushion things or sugarcoat it, which, you know, I think now, <laughs> you know, as I'm about to become a mom myself, it's sometimes hard to sugarcoat things that are just realities of life that you have someone who's not well in the family. So, yeah. Well, kids know. They, you know, that's the thing about, you know, when I was doing interventions, it was interesting. Uh, I was trained in um, the ARISE model, where the invitational intervention model. When I was doing interventions, we would talk about, you know, there would be 10 year olds or, you know, and they said, well, we don't want them at the intervention, you know, and it would be their parent. And I would say, look, 10 year olds know what the something's going on. They may not have the words for it, but they're experiencing all the pain and suffering living in a home with an alcoholic you know, they're capable of absorbing that. It's important that they're also capable of absorbing the information that's talking about the recovery and what to do and what to happen. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about. It's like kids know something is up and it's important that we don't pretend that that's not real or tell them or or not acknowledge those feelings. And we acknowledge them by telling them what's going on. Yeah, I think my parents did a very good job of that. So he, when he'd come back, he was all in, you know, he was right. always blind very much and he would come with gifts. And I think, you know, looking back on that was such as love, his love language and his way to express himself. I, you know, looking, looking really back, he, I remember he had gotten me a coach purse and as silly as it seemed, but it was so important back yeah. then. Oh yeah. That was like the big deal. Oh, and, yeah. um, you know, and he just, and it wasn't just, he wanted to fill you with materialistic things, but he just really cared and thought and like, you know, research what I wanted at that time and how old I was. And that's the kind of person he was. He was extremely thoughtful, very creative. And I remember my dad telling me that he just always had low self-esteem growing up, really had some, like he would just never believe in himself. And my dad would, would kind of tell me these stories so that I would take a different route, I believe. But he was like, I always felt for your brother because no matter how much I told him I loved him or how much I cared for him, the divorce played a role in his life. But not only that, he just never could see what we all saw. So I I do remember my dad sharing that a lot with me. And this was way before he had passed away. So, but around me, he was just a fantastic person and didn't ever treat me any differently and was never standoffish. I just overall very, very loving person. What did you think from your perspective growing up with this and seeing, oh, my older brother's doing these things, he's disappearing. At what point did you go, did it kind of resonate like, okay, drug addiction, right? Drug and alcohol, whatever, you know, and what did you think? What was the, I'm always curious, like what was the implicit thought 
around what a drug addict, an alcoholic, like, wait, David, that doesn't fit. Like, did it fit with what you thought? And how did you, if not, then how did you reconcile? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was, you know, child of the late eighties, early nineties, totally part of the dare program. They really paid. (laughs) I mean, it's horrible that is, but it's very true. You know, giving us those t-shirts. Oh, I remember. Yep. But you know, and they, they really did paint a picture of, you know, drug addicts being horrible people. There really wasn't, you know, your brother or your dad or your mom. So I, you know, looking back on it now, I just always worried about him. I think that was the fear. Uh, He was such a bright light when he would come around and he would be present in our lives. And I think for me, I was in music class one day and we played some song and I remember tearing up because I was worried about him. Why? I don't know. I I think I was like in third grade or something like that, but I just remember being concerned and my parents kind of whispering in the other room about him. And and those were the things that I picked on the tension in the house. How are we going to fix him? What are we going to do? And at that point he was already an adult and uh, you know, my, my dad kept feeling like he had to figure it out. So And he had issues before he had gotten, he was a bodybuilder, got really into bodybuilding again, all or nothing thinking. Um, And he had gotten testicular cancer from using uh, substances at that point too with bodybuilding. So, so things that have, he had had serious consequences in his life from that and just, you know, hearing about it kind of through, sometimes my parents would be very honest and open with me. And then there are other things that they probably felt you know, a, a young child or a preteen doesn't need to know all the details. So, I, you know, looking back on it, I just overall had just a, a worry for him. So you talk about this one moment where your brother tells you that he can handle his drugs, you know, uh, and how old were you when, it, can you tell us about that and how old were you when that happened? Yeah. So we, my parents had decided to move to Florida. Um, like I said, my parents are a little bit older. They wanted to not be in the cold New Jersey winters anymore. So we had moved to Florida. He decided to come down. He did tile work. He was fantastic with that. And we, I was 16 at the time. We were sitting in the car and he had pointed to somebody who, you know, was, was homeless. And he said, see, they can't handle their drugs, but I can. And I remember just my stomach dropped and being in the car and feeling, even though I was younger than him, feeling so much older and wanting to like shake him and say like, what are, you know, I, I, you know, trust me, I'm, because of his experience, I'm not, I've never been addicted to drugs. That's not been my path or my journey. But I remember at that moment feeling like we're losing him. And he was erratic during that whole trip. He couldn't sleep. He was up and down. He had told my dad he was addicted to the same thing Rush um, Limbaugh was, or yeah, that guy from the radio. My dad was like, what? And really nobody had heard of, I mean, at that point, opiates were just coming. My dad hadn't heard about it. So, you know, and then eventually at some point, like millions of people, he switched to heroin, but yeah, he had started using opiates for pain and then it evolved from there and his, him already having addictive tendencies. So that was a really poignant moment. I remember that. And then shortly after that summer, he had passed away. So what happened? Did he pass, was he passed away while you guys were living in Florida? Was he there? No, so he went back up. My my parents had given him a ton of furniture from our house and we didn't want it. And we had heard that he had sold it all. And my dad was kind of confused, even though my mom and my dad and I were saying, hey, something's up with David. Like, you really need to talk to him during his trip to Florida. Um, he had sold all the furniture and his mom, who's my dad's ex-wife, had called us and 
she had slightly mentioned that he had gotten arrested and then she had bailed him out. So it started to build like that. And then he kind of continued from there. My dad kept getting phone calls and he'd be on the phone a long time. Things would settle down. And then he would be on the phone again with his ex-wife and talking about David. So I'd always hear it like in the background, worried about him. And then we had gotten, I remember, this is also another moment that I just remember so vividly in my mind, but we were sitting at my aunt's house in Florida. My dad was on the couch and he had gotten a phone call and he just started crying. And I knew at that moment that something was, was wrong. And he just kind of, you know, did the air verbalization of David's gone. And um, from what we had heard, he was alone and he had gotten money from having a new job and spent it on heroin. And he had had a few weeks of sobriety, according to everyone around him. And he had used, um, he was alone with his dog. The neighbor heard the dog crying and that's, that's how they found him. So, you know, I think he had a lifetime of hardships and, and sadness and, he, yeah, he really struggled in the end and it, it happened fast. I mean, it really, how, I mean, obviously the span of time, it was, a no, I want to say November. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, he has a memorial on, on line. I've never, I've never really looked at it. I haven't, not because I don't want to, or not because I don't want to come to terms with it, but, um, I just, I haven't, and I didn't get to go to his funeral either. So it was from June to November and he had passed away. So it was a really, really short, short time period that he had just spiraled so fast. And that's, I mean, very typical with, with heroin. It happens like that. And especially after a period of sobriety too, people around him said he was doing really well. He started working again, and then he probably used the same amount as he did before and Pat that his body couldn't take it anymore. So, yeah, I mean, I think about that, him being alone. He loved his dog. His dog was named Rush. It was after the band. And um, I was glad that he was at least with his dog because that, that was important, you know, and he loved that dog. So, yeah. What, why, why weren't you able to go to the funeral? So my, I was in school at the time and I just started a new high school and my parents were like, you know what, I wasn't really a a decision. My dad just decided to go. Um, Interestingly enough, my dad, when he came back, he told us that most of the people were, were there. David always had a knack for having these amazing girlfriends and they all showed up to his funeral. I think like nine of them over the years. And my dad, that was the one thing that we had kind of, you know, had that moment when he got back from the funeral and he just said, yeah, all his girlfriends were there. And he started naming off some names and they all loved him. I mean, they all showed up for him and they, they, said to my dad, because they each came up and kind of shared their condolences. They said, you know, if it wasn't for the drugs, I would have married him. You know, if it wasn't for the the things going on. Um, so, yeah. And he, he always had a knack for it. He never had anybody in his life. I mean, I always loved all his girlfriends. I always remember that. They were always fun, sweet. I mean, he really attracted people in his life that were similar to him when he was doing well. Right. So Right, when he was yeah. doing well. It sounds so it sounds like your family was a little bit distant from it, given that it, it your mom didn't go to the funeral and and like what was the reaction after if it, like the closeness was there, but then then kind of the like well you you should stay here or I'm just gonna go by myself, yeah, I mean, there are things you know when you look back and you you think why did i I didn't fight to go to the funeral right you know, I didn't argue or or plead or beg and I'm not, I'm 
I don't particularly love funerals. I, just, I don't think anybody oh, does, don't. but no, but I, you know, I, I, back then I just didn't really think about it. Everything happened so fast. It was like, my dad was booking an air flight. He was gone, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and my mom had spent, I mean, she'd known David since he was very young. I mean, I think three or four, four, four years old. He was young. He was a young boy and she played a huge role in his, in his life. And then they had grown, distant over the years because my mom would hold him accountable, whereas my dad wouldn't. Right. Right. So I definitely think that played, you know, my mom would not tolerate. I remember hearing a story. He came over one time and he was demanding all these things. And my mom had said, no, we're not doing that. And, you know, typical, (laughs) I'm in relapse behavior. You're not going to feed into me. I'm going to turn away from you. So I think over the years they had gone distant. Um, She didn't go to the funeral. I've never actually asked my mom why she hasn't to this day, but I think also our culture, at least in my, we're we're Jewish and sometimes, at least my understanding is sometimes that the body isn't really significant of death, if that makes sense too. Like we believe that people, like we've said our goodbyes to them, at least culturally, that's how I was raised. So yeah, yeah, I think that was that too. How did you get to Al-Anon and Alateen? So my mom had suggested, so I was really struggling with it. I remember moving to a completely different state, being in a new high school. And my mom had said, why don't you try to go to a support group? I think at some point she had gone to a support group herself of some sort. I don't know if it was Al-Anon. So I had gone to Alateen and it was such a great experience. I met a lot of teenagers there and really connected. And then when I went to college, one of my close friends was in recovery and said, you know what? I love Al-Anon myself. Why don't you start coming with me? And, and cause there was a lot of unresolved feelings about it too. There were times when I was angry that my family really hadn't done more or intervened more or which families sometimes just don't. I felt like they kept just pushing it under the rug. Like it's going to get better. Things will turn around. He's done this before he survived that kind of mentality. So I talked about that a lot, but I think, you know, also for me, Al-Anon has taught me how to have stable relationships with people too. It's given me a foundation and that's what I talk about a lot in therapy, that it's not just about your experience with your loved one. It's also about how you react to relationships. And a lot of times I have, I notice when I have trust issues or when I don't want to let people in, um, you know, even Marrying my husband, my husband came from some similar backgrounds too and realizing, oh, that's, that behavior is coming from there, you know? So it gave me a lot of insight into my life and really helped me. And I, to be honest, I would tell everyone to go to Al-Anon at some point because it's, it just really gives you that foundational piece and also support. It's really good to hear other people share, you know? So for me, that was, that was really important at that time. And especially in college, getting other people and and to hear their support. Yeah. So what, you know, now as a licensed therapist and having had this background, when you look back on what happened and you kind of touched on it with like a lot of it was pushed under the rug. When you look back on that, what do you see now that you didn't see then or that, you know, or that, that you didn't see before you uh, were trained in, in therapy and psychology? Yes, I I don't know if this comes from such a theoretical perspective, but I think I don't think anyone's prepared to have addiction in their family. You know, I again about to be a mother, I we have we have addiction on both sides of our family. Am I I could go to years and years of school to be a therapist. Am I prepared if my son struggles with addiction? I don't know the decisions I'll make. I probably will make bad decisions just because of love and emotions and feelings. 
But looking back on it, I think my parents did the best they could. I think there were times when I didn't think they did. No one comes with this a beautiful guidebook and says, okay, if your son is using heroin, what do you do next? You know, there's, I mean, there are books nowadays, but it doesn't come, <laughs> right. come on the day of birth, you know? So I think that's a big thing. Forgiveness is really huge. Uh, families do hide things. They just, sometimes it's so uncomfortable to talk about the reality or the pink elephant in the room. And we were a society, at least as a whole, that everything should be happy. We really force this emphasis on happiness all the time when there's some serious issues in our family settings. You know, I was, I was watching an episode, I think of This Is Us or something. I'd never seen the show, which is not great to start when you're pregnant. Oh, super emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they really beautifully show the dad having a problem with alcohol. And I was really impressed with that because a lot of times shows will show other issues, but not alcoholism or drug addiction. I, they had done a really good job of that. And I'm hoping that becomes more and more because so many families, I mean, every time I tell people what I do for their a living, they always say, oh, my uncle, oh, my cousin, oh, my father, you know, it's not the quote unquote bum under the bridge. This is our family. This is, you know, I'm, I know so many individuals have struggled and suffered with it. So looking back now, I think that I have so much compassion for people who do, who do survive you know, and, and do get the help that they need and are willing to get the help. I really try to honor that when I work with anybody. And yeah, I think that that's been something that's been really highlighted for me because not everyone makes that decision to change their life. Hi, I'm Peter Loeb, CEO and co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery. We're proud to sponsor The Courage to Change, and I hope you find that it's an inspiration. I was inspired to start Lion Rock after my sister lost her own struggle with drugs and alcohol back in 2010. Because we provide care online by live video, Lion Rock clients can get help from the privacy of home. We offer flexible schedules that fit our clients' busy lives. And of course, we're licensed and accredited, and we accept most private health insurance. You can find out more about us at lionrockrecovery.com or call us for a free consultation, no commitment, at 800 800- Two five eight six five five zero. Thank you. It's interesting, and you've probably dealt with this too. But with everybody talking about the opioid crisis now, well, it's, you know, sounds like your brother and I were using kind of in the same, you know, using opiates in the same era. And you know, to me, it's it's interesting to watch. Like when I was using, and it sounds like when your brother was using opiates and heroin. I mean there were not young girls using hair, you know, there were not affluent people. There were not, it was, it was an ugly, ugly place to be. And most people did not know anyone who was using heroin. Whereas today it's mainstream. I mean, it's really mainstream, which is obviously frightening, but it's just interesting. You know, we have literally watched that, that progression from the pills and the, you know, kind of the, the gateway opiates into what we, you know, what is now killing an incredible amount of people in America. And so for me, it's so when people now it's like a crisis, right? Where for me, it's been, this has been going on for decades. It's been a crisis for a long time. It really has. Yeah. 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 I agree. It's, it's interesting to see. 
When I started um, my internship, I was at the Hanley Center, which is was predominantly a place for people with alcoholism. Yeah. And I remember I had my first my first client. She'd come in and she kept talking about blues. I had no idea what blues were, so I had to Google that. And then <laughs> you know she, <laughs> I really didn't. I mean, aloof as I am, but now you know nowadays I know what blues are and all that good stuff. But yeah, so oh, wait, they tell were, our they didn't know how to. Oh, um, it's oxycodone. Yeah. yeah. So different, different Medicaid, but on the streets, it was called blue. So she came in, she was a college student, great university she was going to, and she was actively using blues and she kept referring to them. And this was in detox. So she probably couldn't even pronounce Oxycontin at the time, but um, yeah, she had said that. And, you know, the center really didn't, they, they kept, you know, saying, I don't know how to work with somebody who's on opioids. I don't know what to do. And I said, you work with her like everybody right. else. <laughs> Right. She has the same struggles as everybody else. She's having a tantrum in the hallway. So is our alcoholic client. You know, it's the same. I mean, obviously there's some differences, but my entire caseloads, once I started becoming an act, you know, a therapist and having, I would have, I would say 11 out of 12 clients for all opioid users and heroin addicts. So, and most of them had had chronic pain, some sort of accident, some sort of something tooth, you know, like tooth related, and they had gotten addicted and couldn't afford opiates anymore and then went to heroin and it was across the board. You know, it's interesting. The first, um, I moved to Utah almost three years ago and they have billboards everywhere now, you know, really trying to address the opioid addiction, which is fascinating to me. We don't have that in South Florida where it's also super prevalent because we had so many pain mills, as they call it, pain medication centers that were distributing. But yeah, I'm hoping, you know, I think there's more and more attention to it now, but it's still, still people are confused. Like you talk to some people and they're like, oh, I didn't know that was an opioid or I didn't know that was an addictive substance. I'm like, do you not, you know, do you not read Um, things like that? But, you know, even quick, quick scenario. I went, my husband had fallen off a ladder a few years ago and the doctor came in and was about to write him a humongous, you know, prescription for opioids. And I looked at the doctor and I said, have you even asked him if he has an addictive history or anything? And he's like, no. I said, did you ask him if he needs opioids? No. And I, and I said to him, I said, I think my husband probably could survive on Tylenol. Like he'll be okay. My husband was like, like giving me, yeah, right, right. I like, was like, uh, you know, this is, how <laughs> yeah, this is how people's addiction start though, totally. you know, and, yeah, and it, it was so casual and so and I said look that's like literally a death script for some people they get that and that's and it. That, I mean that's that is the that moment in time and and I know um we the one of our, our episode two is um with Bayan oh Bayan and she tells her story and the moment in time she ends up she, she's like crazy and she ends up in the emergency room for um, domestic violence the doctor doesn't ask her anything about that and he hands her a script for opioids and it, and that was it, or, or for sorry for benzos, and that was it. That was done. That was that was the like. It never stopped from there. And I just thought, wow, like that. Not that it wouldn't have gotten there or whatever, but that one moment in time. And I, you know, I've seen. I'm sure you've seen this too. But I had someone come in whose OBGYN was prescribing them benzos and opioids, and I, I mean, my, I, I was like, wait, what? You know, but there's this, there's a lack of understanding. And I think one of the things that it's like, we've seen how, how many times have we seen people come in, people talk to us and they tell us the same story. 
over and over. We can write it. We could write. They, we know they start saying, I had a back problem and we literally can write the rest. Right. Um, or, you know, I had some trauma and then I had a back, you know, I was, I was abused and everything was fine and I got over it and then I had a back problem and then, or whatever, like we can write that story. And I think if you are someone who hasn't seen that over and over again, you know, a do- an OB or whatever it is, maybe it doesn't, seem like, well, this patient or what, you know, like this person's responsible, but what people don't understand is like, this is, it's not about the put togetherness of your patient. You know, it's, 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 there's so much more that goes into it. And the, and the, it's, I mean, the story is right. It's, it's there, you know, for better, for worse, most of them are very stereotypical stories. They are. And that was my entire basic, you know, seven plus years of working in South Florida. I mean, every single assessment I ever did, the story was so similar. (laughs) And I mean, it really was. And it was heartbreaking because, you know, if I didn't work in this field and I didn't have some awareness, who knows, I could have gone to the hospital with an injury or, or, you know, anxiety and gotten a prescription and been in the same exact seat. And I would tell that to my clients too. Sometimes, you know, and there's a lot of underlying foundational factors too, you know, low self-esteem, trauma, you know, poor family history and and things like that. But, you know, in that situation, your body physically gets dependent on something that you need in order to feel like you can exist. And it gets, people get fearful when they're going to go and withdraw. So, yeah, because it sucks. I'm just going to say that for the record. Yeah. Uh, it's a real bummer. But what's interesting though, and, and something that came up for me at the Hanley, you know, when you're talking about the Hanley Center, and I don't know if people, how many people know this, but you cannot, people don't die from opioid withdrawal, but they do die from alcohol withdrawal and from benzo withdrawal and the combination of those two. And so, it, you know, when we talk about like, oh, we don't know what to do with these people, in terms of the opioids, but we know how to handle the alcohol. The truth is, I understand we have an opioid crisis. I'm not denying that. But the truth is that alcohol still kills more people than any other drug combined and all the other drugs combined still to this day in the midst of the opioid crisis, alcohol is still killing more people. And so, you know, in some ways, I think it's kind of a vanity thing, like a, it's kind of a, like an easier thing to deal with, right? Like we're going to put this and then and then by default, we'll deal with the stuff behind it if we deal with the opioid. But we've been handling some of the most deadly substances, such as alcohol, for many, many years. And and this is just that the new wave. Yeah. And I just want to say, too, I mean, now they're they're a, they're a fantastic place. I mean, they, I think they just had to get used to anything. You know, oh, there's sure, always sure. I mean, a new drug on the market that, you know, people are, I remember bath salts came out in South Florida, too. And people said, we don't know what to do with that either. You know, but, I still don't know what to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, it's an evolving process. And one of the things I'm always amazed about is that people used to get put in psychiatric wards when they were struggling with substance abuse. And that was not that long ago, if we really think about in the grand scheme. That was that was what that was what happened to me. And I remember (laughs) I remember being in these these, you know, it was 5150, right? Like they were like, we don't know what to do with you. We're going to stick you here and hope that, you know, you're okay until we figure it out. Right. And that happened all the time with teenagers, you know, who had this going on. Cause you could do that. That was the, that was the main mechanism. And I remember just being in these psych wards and with people who were truly psychotic and thinking to myself, like, no, 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 guys, I'm not crazy. I'm on drugs. Like, you know, just trying to trying to explain your way out of just sitting in groups of people that are seeing things and hearing things. And you're like, 
oh my God, how did I get here? You know, and the, and the solution in the psych ward is more medication, right? That's, that's their tool. So, it, you know, they just really want to, so it was, it's, you know, it wasn't that long ago that that was our, that was one of the very common main tools that we used to kind of figure out what to do with people. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I'm hoping that changes more and more, but yeah, I, I talk to people about that all the time. Even the quote unquote 30 day model really came originally from the military and that's when people could take off time without getting in trouble with the military. So when clients say to me, you know, how much time does it take? And I say, <laughs> to be honest with you, it takes a good full two years. It really does of healing. And, and then it's a lifetime of work. So I'm hoping that that changes. And it really has. I mean, even in, in my, you know, time period of working, so many things have changed in the addiction field. We're starting to know more and more and about trauma and how that plays a component and co-occurring oh, yeah. disorders. So I've just been in awe of, of the changes and we're, we're really gravitating more towards understanding people and not just the substance they use. Right, right. Where's the pain, right? Where's the pain? What are you using the painkillers for? What are, um, when you work with families that have an opioid addict. I know a lot of people listening probably have, you know, son, daughter, sister, brother, maybe parent who has an opioid problem. Where do you start when you are counseling the family? What do you start with? Someone says, hey, my son has, my 25-year-old son has an opioid problem and I don't know what to do. I usually look at the family as a whole and, and talk to each one of them individually. But then on top of that, the hardest thing is I usually ask them who takes care of them because they've been taking care of somebody for so long and trying to get them in the mode that they need to heal as well. And this is going to be a twofold process. It isn't just, you know, our loved one who needs help, you need help as well. And, and getting the support, I think that's the if, if anything I can pass along to families, that would be the most important message, whether or not you go to support groups or you go to therapy or you talk to a neighbor who's going through the same thing you are just to not feel so alone. There's a, a wonderful person named Katie Donovan who I've known for a few years and she helps families all over the country. But she, I mean, honestly, it's just moms talking to other moms and not feeling because she felt like, you know, she was the only mom who had a daughter who was struggling and she started writing a blog and, and things like that. But it just, it unites people. It makes you feel like this isn't just my problem. It's a bigger problem than that. So starting there and then realizing, you know, obviously there's some hard work ahead and who's enabling and who's rescuing and who's doing that kind of stuff. And, right. um, but really getting them to a place where they can just start talking about it without just pointing fingers. Cause that's typical what families do. We want to blame, we want to find a scapegoat. We want to find somebody who's caused all this misery or something the drug dealer, you know, and it's like <laughs> the drug dealer did it. Yeah. Well, there's eight, there's 8 million other drug dealers out there in the world. So if we find them all, we'll let you know. But just talking about it, and the first, that's the first step. Start start talking about it, getting the help and support you need, working on your own recovery, not just your loved one's recovery. So let's talk about that piece, okay? So as having worked in, in this industry and as a, as a professional and as an interventionist, I'm very well aware of the importance of the family taking care of themselves, digging into their own work. However, if you were to tell me while one of my sons 
was struggling with an opiate addiction and I knew how deadly that was, that I needed to start taking care of myself, I might punch you in the face. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and so when you were talking about like all the training in the world, all this, like it, it, if I, my son was struggling, I don't know what I would do. I totally relate to that. Cause I, I have this, you know, picture in my head of telling people things. Sometimes I had this woman who her daughter was homeless and we were trying to get her to come home so that we could get her to treatment. And it was like, it was this whole thing. And anyway, the, she was used to taking her daughter to get drugs and whatever. And so the thing I had her do was not answer the phone of her homeless daughter for two days. And I, and we mapped this whole thing out and I said, she's going to come home. She's going to come home. And I remember thinking to myself, she did come home. And I was like, I know my drug addict, she's coming home. Um, and I just remember thinking like, I'm telling her this and she's so brave and she's doing this. And I have no idea if I'd be capable of not answering that call. Like for, you know, and so when, when people talk, come to you, right? Like I have what I, you know, what I talk about when people come to you and, and you tell, talk to them about the self-care piece and finding their own recovery. And they're like, my kid is dying. What are you talking about? What do you tell them? That's the first thing that comes out of my mouth. Usually (laughs) just FYI, that's not the first thing. Okay, okay, okay. okay. I totally agree with you. And, you know, I do, because I don't come from the um, addiction side and many, I mean, I used to have a struggle with that when I first, first started when clients used to kind of challenge me on that a little bit, but I, I can tell them, you know, I know what it's like to be your sister. I know what it's like to be in your family and to get that earth shattering phone call. But when I work with families, I try to get them united again because there's so much division, whether, you know, there's a husband and a wife and they're not on the same page. So I always tell them, look, you're going to do some hard work. You're going to, there's going to be times where you want to curse at me and screw me. You're more than welcome to do that. And I'm okay with that. I know that that's going to come, right? Because all of a sudden I'm going to become your scapegoat. I'm going to become your bad person. Right. And I'm going to ask you to do things that are going to make you feel uncomfortable because you're used to doing things the way you've always done them. And now there's somebody new coming into the picture and looking at it from a different perspective. Right. I usually ask them, what are you willing to do differently? Because you can't be the treatment center. You cannot be, you know, the law. You can't, I mean, you just can't. Eventually you will burn out yourself. You've, you've managed a okay treatment center so far. Your, your child's still living, but let, let other people help you with that. And um, if I can, you know, I even have asked couples before who have, you know, a loved one or a child, I'll say, when's the last time you two went on a date? When's the last time you two hugged each other? Just felt love. And there wasn't this pressing of, you know, doom and gloom and death coming. And usually I've had a lot of families kind of break down and say, yeah, we, we and that's where I lead into the self-care topic. But the first thing is, okay, we, we have to create a safety plan because safety is really important. Getting your daughter, like you talked about, getting your daughter off the streets getting her into treatment. And then there are going to be some boundaries that you're going to have to hold. Yeah. And it's going to be so uncomfortable because I'm cutting off your air supply. Totally. We're taking heroin out of your daughter and we're taking your heroin away. Yep. So be prepared for withdrawal symptoms. And I talk about that a lot because that's what families go through. Once you change those dynamics, they're so used to buying the drugs, rescuing constantly on the go, doing something because they feel it's that perpetual need. And if I'm doing something then it means that everything's going to be okay. There's safety in the doing. So when we pull and take that away, that becomes really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really hard. And I love that taking the air away because that's how I, you know, that's how I describe addiction and, and what we do to the families as the addict, as the struggling one is, is make them, you know, 
can think they're they're insane and we make them turn on each other and um i i had an experience of last year where someone who was sober but then I believe had relapsed, but was telling me they hadn't relapsed, but there were all sorts of like really clear, you know, those really like, there's no way you would have done, you know, and, but, but really convincing me, you know, telling me like, no, this was just, you know, whatever. And I remember thinking like, am I crazy? Am I, everything I know, having a history of this, having worked in this, you know, like I started to question my own sanity. Like, am I are these things, oh, maybe I'm overreacting, you know, whatever. And I started to believe what this person was telling me. And of course, it, you know, turns out that they were using and that was that because that's, because that's exactly what it looks like. And I go, oh my gosh, I totally forgot how, how, when you are in your disease and you are a, you know, you are, that is what's going on for you. And it's the only thing you can see. Everyone around you feels insane. Everyone who loves you feels insane. Like they, they don't know what's up. They don't know what's down. They don't trust themselves anymore. They can't breathe. You know, it's just, it, it hijacks everything in a family. And that is why it is, you know, and you, you talk about the family therapy. I cannot stress enough if someone has a loved one, the value of going to a session together to have some cohesion and get everybody on the same page. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and they also have that core issue of I'm a bad parent that that comes out so often. You know, I haven't, and I say this very, I really, in my career, I haven't worked with a lot of quote unquote bad parents. I work with parents that are loving, caring, connected, devoted to their children. And you can have a beautiful childhood, a well-rounded childhood, everything that you could possibly want. And you still have so many struggles with, with drug and alcohol addiction. So, you know, teaching that to parents too, that you didn't necessarily, yeah, there's been actions and things that have happened and we're going to work on that as a whole and collaborate together. But your intent was, was beautiful. Like you, you had a wonderful intent. I think parents go to that blame so much and that really prevents their progress too and asking for help. Yeah. Right. Because, or, or they blame the other parent for what the scenario is. And, and, uh, you know, I know that I almost broke up in my using, I almost broke up my parents' marriage. And the reason being that there was a decision, one parent wanted to send me to treatment and the other parent wasn't ready to send me to treatment. And in between the time that the first parent and the second parent was ready, a lot of really, really bad things happened. And in order to, for that second parent to be ready to put me in treatment and the resentment of the parent that was ready first and the blame and the, you know, all these different things. And it was interesting to me, you know, how many people you're making life and death decisions and it's nobody knows what to do, but it's really easy to blame someone for getting it wrong or what looks like getting it wrong. Yeah. And again, nobody has a, you know, crystal globe or ball or anything that could predict any of those things. And it's hard, but yeah, that's the biggest thing. If I can get parents on the same page or whoever's in their system, their family system to be on the same page. And it's hard. I mean, trust me, I've been cursed at, screamed at, yelled at, told everything in the book. I'm not doing that. That's fine. You know, I'm just here to help you. I mean, I don't, there's no gain I get from not giving you the advice I'd give my own family members. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) But in in their, you know, crisis zone, they it's hard to make decisions. So yeah, with your parents and that's, that's heartbreaking, but at the same time, glad they're still together according to what you're saying. And yeah, 
Yeah. And that they got through that because it's, it can be, it rips families apart. It really does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. really does. Before we, you know, kind of wrap, I want you to talk about the, the relevance or um, instance of trauma as it relates to addiction, alcoholism, and how often you see that playing a big role. So again, I do assessments. I probably do four to five assessments a week, you know, uh, throughout my, my time as a therapist. And I would say I don't have many clients who don't have some form of trauma of some sort. And whether it's childhood trauma, adult trauma, or trauma when they're using, because as yeah. we all yeah. know, there's an extraordinary oh, yeah. chance of that. And I think that many clients, you know, maybe they don't perceive it as trauma initially too, just because it's just part of their flow and right to it, right? Like when they're right. talking about their life story with me and I'm writing all these things down and then I repeat it to them, they're like, oh yeah, that happened and that was but I got through that. And that happened. Oh yeah. Right. But I got through that because there are people who are in, who, who struggle with addiction, they're resilient people. They really are. They've had this, they've had to be resilient to survive. So until they start talking about it and realizing, and not that we want to, you know, quote or label somebody as a trauma client, but at the same time, once they start realizing that was really painful in my life and I haven't wanted to deal with those emotions, I had a really good mentor. Um, and he, he was old timer in recovery old timer, somebody who's an AA for, you know, they're, they're older and old timer. Anyway, he was just amazing. But he said in a group once, and I'll never forget this. He said, this is a chronic thought disorder. And I love that because it truly is. I mean, no matter what drug or, or what substance you put in your body, it's the thoughts and the thoughts are connected to our trauma, our core beliefs and who we are and the belief system we've, we've created, whether it's true or not. And then if we can start to shift that to be more vulnerable then we can really open up some pathways. So I see it pretty much every day working as a therapist, some sort of trauma, whether, you know, childhood, adulthood, or, or during. So um, I think the more and more we realize that it's not just the substance, like clients always want to tell me, this is the substance I use, you know, thank you for that information. <laughs> right. I want to know more about you, you know, so right. I can get to work with you because that's just the surface. Right. Like, that's just, that's the vehicle you use to get where you wanted to to not be present in your life. Now we have to figure out how to get you present in your life. Right. What was the reason? You have been working at uh, Line Rock doing telehealth for a little bit now. Have you, you know, what has, what was your experience with telehealth before that? And, and what has it been like to treat clients over video conference? Sure. So, for close to two years, I worked with adolescents in Utah, which is really common here. And I worked again in substance abuse and mental health. And we did we did telehealth with their families because they didn't live locally. So I really loved it then. It was a great tool. And then when I got presented um, with the opportunity to work at Lion Rock, I just really embraced it. I didn't know if I would at first because there is that distance. But my client, one of the things I love about Lion Rock is that my clients bond with each other. It's absolutely incredible. And they all care about each other and they're all asking each other questions, you know, how did this happen or how are you doing? And um, they are so connected. It's a beautiful thing. I actually did a presentation on telehealth the other day for my my daytime job and they were asking questions around that. And I just said, obviously, if only they could be a fly on the wall with hip right. and involved. But I said, these clients, they, they have so many different backgrounds. They come from all different places, all different ages. And they, they just care about each other. And that's the beautiful part of not only Lion Rock, but recovery 
because they become invested in their lives. They become invested in other people's lives. They become, as I call it, other-centered instead of self-centered. Yeah. And that's when they, that's when I see that shift. So when I notice that so-and-so is all of a sudden asking about another client and they're worried about that person, I'm like, oh, you're getting better because you care about yeah. other people. Right. That, right. that gives me chills doing group um, because I just, how much they care and how excited, like I had one client who missed group the other day and she's like, I missed you guys. I really miss being here. And I was like, we missed you too. You know? So yeah, yeah. I think that connection, you know, again, connection is the biggest thing in recovery and they are really, they get really connected to their, to their peers and the people in their group. And they want to hear how they're evolving and growing and they want to see each other grow. So that to me is, is line rock in a, in a nutshell and what works about the program. Yeah. Yeah. It's super cool to see. Cause you know, you don't, you don't know at first, like, how is this going to work? How's this going to play yeah. out? <laughs> people really people have met up and um, people get, you know, really, really connected to each other. And my best friends are all from a treatment center I was in for a year in Arizona. You know, I mean, I, I am very, very close to them. And, you know, I think you just have a bond that's like no other with those people. Yeah. So that, that for me, it's, it's, and then again, one-on-one when I do individual sessions for Lion Rock 2 and telehealth, I love seeing the clients grow, the assignments they do, and just seeing them really flourish. It just gives me a lot of hope. And I do think this is where the industry is going. You know, I never thought, I remember there was a ride on Epcot where they had like a video presentation and I remember seeing that when I was little and I'm like, oh, that's kind of what I do now, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was like in the wave of the future. I think that ride's no longer there. That's how outdated it is now. But yeah, it's, it's just amazing. And I also get to meet some amazing people that I would never get to work with sitting in my, you know, office in Utah and I get to meet all these incredible people all over the country. So yeah, really yeah. awesome. Awesome. Well, we're, we're blessed to have you and thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and it's it's just awesome I'm we're so grateful that you know you have your story your background and that you're able to help other families now thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure the courage to change a recovery podcast would like to thank our sponsor lion rock recovery for their support Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation. We are so grateful to our listeners and hope that you will engage with us. Please email us comments, questions, anything you want to share with us, how this podcast has affected you. Our email address is podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. We want to hear from you. 